Hello and welcome to Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today is Desiree Driesenar, biomimicry professional, systems designer, and educator. Desiree is an expert in blue economy, ecology, and nature-based infrastructure, and is an advisor to the European Union Commission. She's nomadic and yet grounded, and deeply embraces the natural complexity of the earth. She works to transition human infrastructure into biodiversity inclusive natural systems and actively embodies the principles of nature and abundance in her work. Welcome, Desiree. It's fantastic to have you as our guest. You're joining me from Greece today, right? Yes, yes. I'm in Greece. And this was a wonderful introduction. Thank you. You've had a remarkable career spanning over 35 years. Um, I'm I'm wondering what first sparked your interest in this transition from a traditional business setting, um, which is polluting and extractive, to a more nature-inspired approach? Was there a turning point as such? And how did your life experiences shape your vision of moving past um, the current system that dominates the era towards systems that co-create with nature? Yeah. Well, um, as you say, I had a, a rather normal career in transport. And transport is really a lot about flows. I was a business unit manager of a removals company. And you understand then how flows work and dynamics. And then I, I'm a marketeer. I'm a business-to-business marketeer. So I do a lot in communication. And I package things in such ways that people understand it. So I'm an explainer, more than a bubble-blowing marketeer. And I, um, my last regular job was in high-tech, which was plasmas and um, vacuums. And I'm really very interested in science. So, yes, as an economist and culture interests me a lot and then one morning in 2011 i think i woke and i thought i need to be in sustainability and i thought why (laughs) and i at first i thought well i'm not into solar panels and windmills it's just not me so i didn't know what to do and i soon came to holistic ways of uh, of working I love the Nella Meadows. I love the people in the 70s who um, uh, had a club of Rome, the people who really made the whole, all the structures like Blue Economy, Gunter Pauli, and uh, Biomimicry, Janine Benuas. Uh, there is the Natural Step um, by Carl Henrik Robert in Sweden. And I studied a lot of these things. I studied also in the UK, Schumacher College, which is wonderful. It's completely planet-based community also. There's a lot about regeneration and community Mm -hmm. there. It is Schumacher College in Devon. And since the 1920s, they already have an economy based on that. Um, so there is a lot going on. And then when I really saw how many people are desperate and thinking that it will never be okay, I thought, well, let's study because I love to study and I love to know stuff. And I have a lot of scientists around me, complexity scientists. So then I thought, let's explain what they do, but then in simple terms, because that's me. I always ask the simple questions. I've always done that in my jobs. And then I explain very generalized because complexity, of course, is if you want to go deep, it's sometimes technical. Yeah. And people don't see the technical of it. I think people like you architects see it best. The difference between designs and machines, for instance, or the difference how to design, how to engineer, how to make interconnectivity work. So that's what I've been doing ever since. And I've worked a lot with Gunter Pauli since 2000, 
2012, I met him. 2013, I went to Hungary to the Blue Economy Summer School and met a lot of the first pioneers, architects like Anders Nyquist, people in Italy like um, Luigi Bistanino, um, well, lots of these professors and also entrepreneurs who made it happen. And we worked a lot on area designs and that's where I thought, this is what really people should know locally, you know, that you can design your area. Entrepreneurs can do it, uh, SMEs if they work together, uh, communities can do it. Governments can really think local and make like uh, good regional economies. I met Bernard Litar, who is a macroeconomist. He was really into Web3 and the new digital um, currencies. He was one of the designers of um, money structures like the currency, like the euro currency, but he also stepped out of the team because he said money is culture and he's so right. Fiat currencies are just one kind of currency. You can have so many more currencies and they can all have cultures and we can all make basic incomes with them. And we can really, now that we have Web3 and crypto and um, yeah, there are so many possibilities now that emerge in the world. And those stories I want to tell because I don't want young people to be desperate. I just want them to see how the world can be in 2222 and how we can even have solved the global goals in 2030 with just a little dif different thinking and taking responsibility for your own environment. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing ever since. Wow, there's so much to unpack here. Um, it's like you've done so much and mm, I can totally see how having these different perspectives has really, really informed the way in which uh, you think and you, your own personal uh, journey of trying to understand it and how you want to make that easier for people. And that's just something that we were just talking about as well. Like, how does everybody get involved? Like, what is the starting point? Because I do think that that particular statement you just said about you were not interested in solar panels and windmills and like, so where is the entry point? And this is common today because that seems to be the um, the picture of sustainability, right? Solar panels and windmills and people are just like, I don't really identify with that, but how else can I do it? So, um, yeah, so I feel like I think we have a lot to unpack and go through. And um, I want to maybe start um, with with what is maybe nature-based infrastructure, because you spoke to area-based design and what everybody can do in their own um, let's say local region. Um so would you uh, take us through that a little bit? What nature-based infrastructure means yes. in terms, how it intersects with biomimicry and holistic science? Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is, it all starts with infrastructure. And of course, during the Industrial Revolution, we thought one size fits all. And we really made everything top down. And maybe it is clearest if we do start with the energy transition, because uh, what we now do is we have one source of energy, a very big one. It's either nuclear or it's uh, coal or it's uh, um, biomass or whatever. And then we uh, just divide it in small pieces to go to houses or to go to businesses. And if we would make an infrastructure for energy as nature would do it, everything would be different. And we would have possibilities to have a thousand plus innovations hooking onto that. 
and also be very resilient for energy. So let me explain a bit how that could work. Uh, a natural system always has a grid and you have many entrance points. You have uh, lots of entrance points to feed into it and you have lots of entrance points to take out of it. So if you would have an energy grid that would combine Edison and Tesla, Nikola Tesla, and you would not have just one source, big source of energy, because that is the big problem. Um, then you would need less cables because you would, could feed small energy sources into the grid and you could handle that. Um, let me give you an example. If, for instance, you now have poles of um, where the lines go, if you would have like small windmills on the poles, you would need little energy, little material. And the technology is already there. Eh? There are little windmills in the poles. There are little windmills on the poles. There are, and you could feed them directly into the lines. Then you would have a lot of extra energy. In Holland, we're now working on uh, harbors. And we're working on, because nature works a lot with differences, uh, to store things, energies or other stuff. But also it works to create. It, it always works on differences to create. Diversity is the main thing in nature that creates abundance, diversity. And complementarity, because if one has a surplus of heat, then another will use the surplus of heat. If one has a surplus of CO2, you could put a spirulina grower next to it, and then you would use the CO2 to grow spirulina, and you'd have abundance of food, because spirulina is a, um, a, a very good food. So those complementary and diversity issues are very important in nature. And you can imagine that in technology that also works like that. So in the harbors, we now work with um, heat exchangers uh, in the sheet pile walls of canals and harbors. And then you would have local energy and if an industrial estate then makes its own energy and a surplus of energy, they could even give the energy to the houses next door in the living areas and make sure we do not have like energy poverty. So that is the thinking in abundance, create abundance, produce with everything you have locally available. And that's what I said as well in the beginning, before we started this conversation, there are examples that people find so, um, yeah, so surprising because we have a lot of pollution. But if you have polluted sediments in rivers, for instance, you can make a river meander and just capture the sediments very easily with a design structure by designing the river and then you would harvest the metals and you would have your scarce metals and you would even fight geopolitics and china who has the monopoly on scarce metals every local community smes whatever can do this and we can also use plants to do it because in nature, you have hyper-accumulating plants. They um, really can capture, for instance, I don't know, cadmium. My, my brother-in-law is a professor in, in Cork, in Ireland, and he always talks to me because he's a toxicologist, and his specialty is... Um, is a uh, duckweed. It's the thing that is on top of the water. 
And of course, you'll, there are many, many thousands of, of species of duckweed. But he uses it to catch a lot of the metals out of the water. And then you can either destroy the duckweed and clean the water like they do now in drinking water plants. Or you can harvest it and just use pyrolysis and just harvest the metals out of the water because they're scarce metals and you might use them again. Mm -hmm. So then the whole of Africa, at this moment, we do a lot of fracking because um, it's not really um, economically viable anymore to get things out of the earth by really digging. But if you would just use these plant-based uh, mining technologies, it's called in, in science, it's called phyto mining. And it's like Indonesia does it with um, aluminium. So they have certain species and they get the aluminium out of the soil because aluminium is an abundant metal in the soil and it's light and we should use it. So, and then nature. That's why I love biomimicry because it gives us so many radical innovation things that we never think about. Because nature always uses structure and not solid materials. So skin is made of the same material as bones. But one is flexible and the other is really tough. And then bone heals itself by putting pressure in a certain direction. Well, we can make self-repairing materials like that, and architects should use it. Why not? Mm -hmm. We can have light materials by just using structure in everything. And then we have minimum material, which is, of course, very sustainable because materials are the things that really... Uh, pollute the earth. But then, if you again think about windmills, why place them in the sea with lots of cables? Why not have local energy sources by having Nikola Tesla um, technology on AC and DC and 12 volts and 24 volts. We know now how a car does it. It's just a closed system, 12 volts. You can have a house like that. You can have an earthquake resistant house, which has a little flexibility made of bamboo maybe, or something else, a little flexibility because you know that trees are less flexible than bamboos because they uh, they have the flexibility. And if you build like that a house and you then use piezoelectronics because that is, uh, you need a little movement for that, then you could have the pressure of the roof, which is gravity. It's everywhere. Gravity. And then you would have like an off-grid house, very sustainable. And we would not need the big windmills in the seas. So this is localized thinking, but it is technical. And if you say this is science fiction, Desiree, no, it's not. Since the 70s, all these designers and architects and techn technical people and everyone have been doing this. Because this is done in Italy. Luigi and Günther Pauli, they have done the tests. It is, well, Blue Economy Theory, which is the 
big think tank of Punta Pauli, Zero Emission Research Initiatives. It is a Japanese think tank. It is founded in Japan. He is Belgian, but it is founded in Japan. So I'm sure that Japan uses it already, a technical society like that with so many earthquakes. We have to look at where people have been inventive and then really get all this going. And for the regeneration, regeneration, I've been a director in, in that period between 2012 and now. I've been a director of the ecosystem restoration camps. In China, there is a huge area the size of Holland that is already restored with permaculture principles. And John Liu has made a wonderful film about that. It's um, called Green Gold. And they made a local economy based on farming and restoring the earth and then really working together with earth. And now at this moment, they do a huge project in Egypt, regreening the Sinai Desert, because there have been calculations that if that is an acupuncture point on the earth, and if we regreen that, then um, it might calm down hurricanes in the whole, a, a large part of Asia, a large part of, of Africa, and a large part of Europe. Well, those projects are really, really, it's by the weather makers. It is holistic water engineers. And what they do mainly is bring sediments on land because the topsoil has been uh, flown to a lake. There has been research that it is all in a lake now. So they're digging out of the lake and they bring the sediments back on land and then dormant seeds in the soil and just design will do the rest. So you will have um, a designed area with lots of, of um, farmers working, lots of food, lots of, I don't know what will be happening. We will have like, um, yeah, lots of, of materials and we can do anything if we think like this and think in abundance. And of course, for every country, it is different because it also depends on your culture, your maintenance infrastructure and your laws. Like in Holland, we have a lot of stupid industrial one-size-fits-all laws. So we have building laws, for instance, that forbid the grid that I'm talking about. They forbid the off-grid. They forbid small grids. They forbid halophyte filters because halophyte filters will clean the water immediately next door to a house. So you will not have a sewer system that brings it to drinking water. And that is how nature is normally doing it. Right. Right. Cutting off a flow and then not cleaning afterwards, but cleaning during and cleaning immediately at the source. Well, in Holland, all these things are forbidden. So we have projects there now. Uh, my husband, Mike Harps, has been a pioneer in 2013 in one of these projects. Uh, it's by a foundation, FIN, and we're redesigning the countryside with these kind of uh, innovations. Um, and we also use food forests because you can really produce a lot of food in seven layers um, on a very small piece of land. And if you have the food forests and you do build rocket stoves, uh, you just need a little wood or a little cellulose, a little biomass, 
um, you gas it. So you just burn it for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, maybe. And then you use the gas, the heat, the heated gas, um, to lead through your oven, to lead through your furnace, to, to heat your water. And our friends, they are, one is an electrical engineer and the other one is a eco builder. And they have designed these houses. They use um, chalk hemp because it's really very insulating. And they have this system where in summer we just use a few solar panels. And in winter we use what I just say, the rocket stoves. And we just have double systems there easily with switches and oh, it's so wonderful. But of course, in India or in a city, you would need different solutions. You would not have space. So you need different spaces. But also there, people, citizens, can take matters in their own, into their own hands and become prosumers. They can produce. And that is maybe also an ail of our times that we think we have to go to a store to buy something. Whereas if you're hungry, grow food. Don't grow alone, grow food. And you can grow it on your wall facade. You can grow it on your roof. You can grow it on every piece of... Ah, there are... In Asia, you have the tiniest, tiny forest movement which is really the all the layers. You have roots you can eat. You have fungi you can eat. You have mushrooms. You have so many edible things. Eat what's edible. Grow what's edible. And if you don't have a farmer close by, then grow it yourself. And for the farmers, it's all about the business models. And the farmers are crucial in this day and age. In Holland, I work a lot with the farmer associations to bring all the farmers new business models. Because if you want to do this veto mining, you need farmers to really invent it. They are the innovators of these times. They know plants. They know how plants interact with the soil. They know how plants interact with the fungi and the water. They know how to design water systems. They have old irrigation methods and they resurface them. And they will, I don't know, I really, I tell them all the time, go be financed by big business, big technical business, because they will have the problems from the geopolitics and they will finance you to be the big inventor because we need colors without um, toxic inks because that is what is polluting our rivers. And you have two ways in biomimicry to do that. The first is plant-based colors. But the second is structure, nanostructures and light reflection like blood butterfly wings. Butterfly wings are the most beautiful wings. And we can have dresses like that. Why not? We can have dresses like chameleons do it. We can even have dresses that really... I don't know, change color with our mood. I know my husband would love it because then he would see when to who not come close because I have a bit of a, I don't know, a temper. <laughs> so I don't know how, but this is, of course, interaction. If a garment would just connect to the temperature of your skin, he would know my mood. So then... A dress could just change colors. Yeah, absolutely. So all these things sound 
science fiction, but they're not. They're really biomimicry. Yeah. It's really sort of diving into the world of possibility because we know we know so much. I mean, the last few decades and in in fact the last thousands of years of our own evolution has just been about learning about our environment, learning about nature, learning about different beings, different systems. Um, but now we've come to a point where we can actually use all of this learning in the way nature uses it because I I, be, I feel like that's the lapse the we've gone to a, a sort of a system where everything needs to be larger than life like it has to be huge it has to be centralized and it has to be centrally controlled and it's always somebody else's problem which really kind of ties back to a situation today where we see especially younger people feeling this kind of eco-anxiety which is in part because of the things that they're seeing and hearing and in fact experiencing um, around them as the natural world degrades. But it's also coming from a sense of helplessness because the way the world is set up is that it's all somebody else's responsibility, somebody else's. It's, it's also, of course, comes down to power as well. It's all in someone else's power. So... Um, if there is a, uh, a, a national policy on what that everyone has to use a particular type of fertilizer, um, then we are all feeling helpless. But, um, when you, the way you explain this, that, oh, you know, can we use it in other ways? Can everybody, regardless of your circumstance, can we do things to, uh, I love that word that you use, like presumers. <laughs> You know, we're not just consumers, we're producing what we're consuming. We are uh, taking care of the waste and it's not waste anymore. Nothing is waste in nature. Everything is like death is leading to something else. And I just want to acknowledge the the tremendous amount of information you just um, shared uh, in possibility and I just want to dwell on a little bit of the idea of abundance um, because, you know, and we, you, you multiple times spoke of how this is not science fiction, um, but it's also because what science fiction has done to us that, you know, the, the, the type of imagination, the mainstream media uh, over the years is has always been about dystopia there's been so many movies and books and um you know like which is so larger than life and exciting when you're watching it or reading about it but it's all dystopia and sometimes you know i feel like that's why we're manifesting it because that's the world that we've imagined yeah. So I want to like just throw it out to you, like how do you imagine this um, yeah. this world? You know, what where does your imagination take us? Well, the thing is that I've been thinking about this exactly for a long time, and of course, one part of me is still in innovation, but the other is really with the women. Because I've just started the movement, Wild Women Writers, and I really think that we should be, first of all, more imaginative, but then also realize that we are nature. So we have a role in all of this. And if we interconnect ourselves to it, then it becomes with a heart again. But we have to take responsibility for everything we do, every conversation we have, every um, interaction in the street. In the beginning, when I started on my journey, I was a bit of a preacher because I saw so much and I thought, why is nobody doing it? Why is nobody doing it? But of course, um, it is evolution. And that's why I don't like revolutions, but I like evolutions. And I think at this moment we are going from, we're really also in science going very far because we're going from the big um, divide between science and religion. 
to having much more diversity back in the world again. Religion is also man-made rules on something that is just happening on our planet. The, the thing is, we are, sometimes we can't imagine it, but we are spinning around with 1,670 kilometers per hour through a universe, glued with our feet to a rock. <laughs> well, that's something we we really feel in our heads and in our bodies and in everything. And it's even proven now that every shape in nature is an antenna and that maybe the whole, ah, there is this evolutional biologist, Rupert Sheldrake, and he's all about the collective consciousness. Maybe it's not in the atmosphere like everybody says, because we have found that there's always this spark that something starts and it is a hole, a deep void inside an organism. And it's not only a living organism, but it's also in a, it's in a bamboo rhizome. It's in a, a root of a plant. It's in a, the neuroscientists now say it's also in a human being. And this is what is the old key point, chi point, like in, in Asia, you have a lot of these old knowledges. And that's where the power is. That's also where you can go when you have pain. I had a year of cancer and it really changed me. But I also went with this neuroscientist who told me, he's a doctor, and he said, well, you can go to this deep void inside and you can heal yourself by just going there and finding your power to live. To, And I don't know how that works. Of course, I had chemo and it was destroying everything in my body. And I had discussions with my oncologist saying, what do I do with my pee? Because I'm peeing it in the environment and then other children get sick. What am I doing with it? And he says, that's not my division. I say, it should be your division. This is what education of doctors should be like. And then when I told him, um, how do I, because everything was destroyed in my body after chemo and radi radiation and, and operation, and I was just distraught. And I said, how do I build up my immune system again? And he said, well, you don't because it does it, it by itself. I say, well, are you kidding me? This is stupid. So I went to an Ayurveda doctor. And I love it how in India, Ayurveda has a minister. And doctors do not use chemical pills. The GP doesn't. I went to a, a Dutch, uh, an Indian doctor, a woman. She came to Holland with her husband, who's in technology and works in Philips. And she is an Ayurveda doctor. And she worked in an Indian clinic together with the people who administered the chemos. Of course, sometimes you need it. I needed the big elephant, otherwise I wouldn't be here anymore. But Ayurveda gave me the very practical things like Agni, like how my digestive system works and what is not there and how I should process my food, what I should eat, what um, uh, spices to use, what, and then I could really get my immune system boosted again, which I needed after chemo. Of course I do. If you have antibiotics, you have to take probiotics afterwards. You have to build up your system again. And we have to get rid of the sewer systems and make sure that we have halophyte filters and dry toilets and everything so that you do not pee it in the environment and then clean it afterwards because you need drinking water. Are you kidding me? This is stupid. But of course, these big infrastructure things are governmental things. And that's where the problem is. 
because governments, the leader should know what I'm saying right now. And they should really be guiding this with laws and with a lot of room for innovation. But they don't see it yet. So at this moment, the biggest, again, way for citizens to take matters into their own hands and not wait for governments is Web3. Because we just started a project, the Fire Guardians, and there are in Web3. Web3 is the big combination of IoT, Internet of Things, uh, algorithms, AI, um, distributed ledger technologies, so you can have your own currencies, your own basic incomes, you can make your own communities, societies, whatever you like. And there's lots of people who make the decentralized systems. So in computer science in algorithms you have centralized which is of course things like facebook and google and everything in america nobody wants to go decentralized because these tech companies have the power but in the rest of the world we want to go decentralized we even want to go fully distributed to DAOs, which is decentralized autonomous organizations and we love it in europe we have the alliance of ioti alliance of iot and edge computing and we really design systems in ways that are interconnected and we just designed a project together with technical people but also community and um, communication specialists. And it has three strands. It is all about climate resilience, because that's my new topic. I really think we should be resilient to local climate and not only be fighting things. So wildfires are a big problem. So we designed a project where we can use like satellite information and sensors and drones to build the AIs and to really do warnings and things like that. But then the sec second strand is to connect local people to their environment again. So that's community activation. And the third strand is um, ecosystem restoration because we need to hold more water in trees and soils. We need to restore soils, otherwise we will only have wildfires and we need, water is really the biggest teacher for systems, but it's also the biggest solution and the biggest problem because we have rising sea levels in Holland, that will be a big problem. And we should be preparing to withdraw to Germany in maybe a century or two. I don't know. If you ha want to have a big vision, then you would have to think about uh, things like this as leaders. But in other countries, you'd have to think about drinking water, like in South Africa. And they should not go for trees. They did that when they imported all the oaks for the uh, winemakers. But oaks grow too quickly in South Africa. South Africa has fine bosch. It has the small plants with the small leaves that do not evaporate very quickly. And they should cherish that and really build on that and then Cape Town would really have to think with this kind of ways. With the wildfires, it will be about, we will also make an economic model because we will involve the tourist industry here in Greece. We will start it on Crete, 
where there's big tourist industry, they have the big risks, so they will have to also come up with funding. The farmers will be included, um, the olive farmers, olive oil farmers. Um, so yeah, we will have to have all these other business models as well, because otherwise all these mechanisms are not sustainable if we do not have a business model with it. So we need to have interconnected business models, but we will also finance it with crowdfunding and people that are seeing the possibilities at this moment with Web3 in Belgium, we are already financing sensors around schools and they're financed by the parents. Why not? Parents, grandparents, half of that is financed by them. And then we also make a model that they will be replaced when there's too much fine dust in it. So there will be money waiting to, to replace them easily and to also recycle them. So yeah, this is a lot of circular economy, really, yeah, done like this. <laughs> wow, it's, um, I'm just like, it's so eye-opening, Desri. I'm so inspired by how you bring all aspects of like human civilization and evolution into this conversation you know the past the present and like the socio-cultural diversity um which is you know such a part of nature like diversity of everything in from whether it's a, whether it's taking what we need or giving it back the diversity of processes the diversity of uh of uh, of elements the diversity of uh of solutions um and, and i just um it's, it's been you know it's, it's such a eye-opening way of imagining things and what you know what i was thinking of was also how uh we are so so paralyzed by fear today because the earth is changing and that's undeniable and you know we can we can pretend it's not, we can deny it, we can try and reverse it, all of that. But the truth is that it's changing. And when you're speaking, what really comes up for me is how it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity not just for us to change and reconnect and reimagine, but it's also an opportunity to do new things, right? Like with every change, like, how, you know, how your project uh, which about the fires, like it's an opportunity to restore the forest. It's an opportunity for communities to reconnect with the local ecosystem, with each other. And um, it's, and I think that was, that's really powerfully striking with me right now that we also like, you know, you also mentioned that we, that the, the Netherlands may have to think of moving inwards. And it's a case for many countries, many cities across the world, here in India as well, in Bangladesh, you know, where whole cities of like 25 million people have. But if we look at it as a threat, as a, as a, as, as, as destruction of everything we built, that's just makes us fearful and paralyzed. But if we look at it as an opportunity of, yeah, okay. Yeah, Death is such yeah. a part of the ecosystem. Death is such a part of the planet. But how do we embrace that? Get excited about it. How do we how do we use it as an opportunity to further our connection with the earth, ourselves, and the evolution of um, our whole family of all beings um, okay. in the planet? Well, that's maybe why I started the Wild Woman Writers. Because I think we need new stories. We need stories of courage. We have, of course, in the whole storytelling and fiction, we have the hero's journey. And the hero's journey is a very powerful um, structure of, um, of narrative where you start in the known and you go to the unknown and you dare and you have a lot of adversity and then you become to the abyss, which is the big, like, oh, everything is falling apart. 
And then you find your courage. That is, again, the deep void inside. And you find your courage. And then you start walking again, still in the unknown. But you start having courage and really, oh, and all these solutions come to you. Ah, and you see this and you see that and you use this and you use that. And then you come in the known again. And then you are transformed. And I think this narrative has been in all of our stories, in all of our films, all of our, um, ah, it's in the Bollywood films, but it's also in the Hollywood films, but mostly written by men. And the thing is, there is a lot of violence in it then and a lot of dystopia. Well, I think that we can have stories with a lot of suspense without violence. And I think the gaming industry needs it. I think the um, the film industry needs it. I think science fiction needs it. Not having just robots that are maybe looking like humans, but not humans. Why be like that? It's stupid. <laughs> why not be, I don't know, why, why do we always want only the cute things like biodiversity is always about cuddly whatevers while biodiversity is in the soil i'm sorry biodiversity is diatoms that we just breathe in because they give us the oxygen 20 percent of the oxygen on the planet is made by diatoms and <clears throat> that's giving us our breath and our as an animal but of course a lot of species do not need oxygen because oxygen is also the most destructive force on earth because it's so corrosive so there are so many layers to things and then i think why not have the full spectrum and have stories of women talking to women without it being about men why do we need um always this male perspective in everything always about big bigger biggest why not have a very small very impactful story at this moment i'm working with a filmmaker on it one um we're making a 10 15 minute film um he is exactly maybe my opposite because he has a kind of a journey like mine. Um, he's a man, I'm a woman, so we have different perspectives, but that makes it wonderful. I want films to be written by men and women together. I want countries to be uh, ruled by men and women together, maybe a couple. Maybe if we had Israel uh, ruled by a Palestinian woman and a Israeli man as a couple, then we would have a, a land that could live together. Why would it have to be about one or the other? Why can't we be just together? Because why is land from me? I'm Dutch. <laughs> But well, this piece of land, is it mine? I come from a very colonial country. But I have like Indonesian ancestors because my great grandmother was Indonesian. And my father was distraught when he had to fight in the colonial war. And I inherited his fears and his PTSD because he was torn apart by this war where he went to really get Indonesia freed from the Japanese because his grandmother was Indonesian. And then he came into a war which was a dirty war, a colonial war, and he was torn apart. <laughs> and then when he came back, he met my mom and got two wonderful daughters. And he made a life for himself and he was the most wonderful dad of all. 
but I also see how all this war and all this destruction is so killing for people in generations ahead. We do not need hatred in our stories, but maybe we also don't need the sweet Bollywood whatevers. I don't really care for too sweet whatever stories. I like diatoms. I like to breathe deeply and have courage and have very courageous young women stand up and say, okay, enough is enough. I do not want my man to go to war. I do not want my children to be born in a war. I really, I stand up and I just make a different world together. Older people, younger people, why have generation conflicts? But then when I see my grandsons, they grow up with games that are rather violent. And I don't like it. So when we go build, uh, we go to the woods and we build huts and we do really very boy things because they're still young. They're four and seven and eight. But then when they kick a mushroom, I just tell them that the fairies don't like it because it's a home. And then they think, fairies? No, Desiree, there's no such thing as fairies. And I make them look. I make them look closely. Why not? Get their imagination going in different ways and different things. And these are things we can all do in our own environment, with the people around us, get our imagination going and really connect to the people we love and to the people we maybe don't care about or maybe hate or maybe, I don't know, we're all one species, a human species on the planet. And in 200 years, I don't know, maybe waters have risen on several countries and we have to relocate to other countries. Well, then we have to not have war. We have to be able to live together on lands that are maybe not ours or ours. I don't know what's ownership. I don't have to own land to live there. I don't wow. have to own land to have a, a, a community garden. I just got offered here in Greece by our wonderful host, Vivian, the place of her mom, which is a beautiful garden of, of food forest. Well, there are already trees, and she doesn't know about food forest, so she asked me to make one. Well, this is great. It's not my land. Well, who cares? Somebody will enjoy it later on. Yeah. Wow, that is so lovely, Desiree. Um, I was getting chills as you're speaking because there's so much gentleness and fierceness in which with which you spark this new imagination. And uh yeah, what we I do, I, I agree with you as well. Like we need the feminine to rise to to balance it out. Um, and that is the, 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 has been the symbol of the oppression of our times, what has been happening to women everywhere. And I just love this beautiful picture of possibility that you've painted. And, you know, as we're approaching time, I feel like it's a beautiful, beautiful, uh, imaginative way to sort of leave this conversation um and uh yeah and i just want to uh we're almost at time but is there anything any last sort of thoughts or wisdom that you want to share with our listeners before we wind up yes i really want us to realize that in 200 years the world will be different and we should not be fearful we should be, have the courage to create what we want to have in life, what we want to rise. That's why I love the regenerative rising, because if this is what we want, then let's make it together. 
And then if we can have, uh, if I say the feminine rising, it's not about making everything feminine. It's about the togetherness of men and women and all genders in between, by the way. Because if we keep um, peeing our... Um, our uh, contraceptive pills in the sewer systems, there will be many genders in between. And that is a reality, you know? It's like, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm from Holland. I have many gay friends. I have wonderful different kind of families and communities and whatever. But this is the reality. We will have many genders in between, and maybe that is the meaning of everything. There are so many things if you zoom out. The biggest problem at this moment is water. Um, the poles of the planet are shifting because we have been pumping water around so much, and we have built these heavy cities. So it is obvious if you put heaviness at certain points you will make different turnings so what it will mean for evolution i really don't know nobody knows don't let any scientist tell you that he knows because he doesn't the system is always reacting it is actions and reactions of all complex flow systems on the earth <laughs> so that is the reality nobody knows what it will be but locally we can make sure that we can be resilient that we can make healthy environments and then we have to really have a lot of hope for the future have a lot of hope for the young people. Um, do not be afraid of anything and really get radical innovations going. Before we started this podcast, I made the, um, I, I'm, I'm a huge Max Verstappen fan, Formula One, because he comes from my area, you know, I even, one of my, small friends he raced him in his cart time so we're always really looking for max for stuffer but then light materials and connections of cars to roads if we have a solar road you do not need a battery in a car you do not need mining anymore so that is what will be invented by formula one people um if these people need to fly in private jets, well, let them do it and let them invent the um, radical innovation of uh, hydrogen in planes or batteries in planes or whatever it is that we're going to have. We can use helium maybe because helium is another abundant substance in the in the universe which is not used at this moment so maybe we can use helium as an abundant material to fly planes it would be really wonderful and this will be done by the radical innovators so yes that will be maybe max together with elon musk and maybe i don't have a big liking to Elon Musk, but then with his Nikola Tesla visions and some interconnectivity, he will maybe make it happen. I don't know. I really like it that all these things are emerging, but I also want us to finance the women and the people of color and the people who now have less opportunities because Max and Elon are not the only species in the world that have hugely radical innovation minds. I see a lot of complexity scientists around me, and my big heroes were Barbara McClintock, who told us about the jumping genes, and Lynn Margulis, evolutionary biologist, together with James Lovelock, she made the Gaia theory. 
well, those women have fought hard and had lots of blame and shame and and guilt in their bodies because they thought they were not good mums because they worked so hard and they and I think the guilt and the shame has to go, the blame has to go. And we should just take responsibility for our own lives. Make wonderful work. Choose the work that really, well, really replenishes our soul. And then we can do it. Wow, that is absolutely beautiful. Um, thank you for sharing these incredible insights. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and thank you for sharing your journey. This has been very inspiring and exciting and not to men mention informative. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. Uh, it has been an absolute honor and a pleasure. I'm very glad that you invited me because also the beginning of the talk before we started recording had really made this a balanced talk, I think. Some people think I'm just about technology. I'm not. But I do involve technology because biology and ecology are technology. And we don't use 80%. There's so much room for innovation. If you go interconnected, that's the main message. Yes. Well, yes, absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, well, thank you, Desiree. And to our Thanks listeners, and to our listeners, stay inspired by nature's wisdom. This is Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, and with me today is Desiree Driesenar, biomimicry professional, systems designer, and educator.